It is another opportunity that we've been given by the God of heaven to assemble, to gather this evening, and we're thankful to God for that. This first day of the week always brings for you and me the privilege and the honor of doing so. I mentioned near the outset of the lesson this morning about the gospel meeting in Herod's Chapel beginning tomorrow evening. So again, please keep that in your prayers, and we'd love to, to have you come join us and be with us and the brethren there. It certainly would also be fair to say, I failed to mention then, but the All Good Church of Christ has their annual spring lectureship taking place a week from yesterday, next Saturday, and they've invited me to speak at the 9 o'clock hour that morning. So again, please keep that congregation in your prayers. I know they'd appreciate it too if you could come and be with them, but at the very least, to, to keep in prayer for the success and the things of that lectureship as it, as it ought to be. Life is not fair. We looked this morning at a lesson primarily centered on the Old Testament character of Joseph. And tonight we're going to continue that. For as you probably are aware, we didn't really look at all the aspects of his life. Please turn back to Genesis chapter 39 tonight. We'll be taking up the lesson at that particular location in just a, in just a few moments. This introductory slide is one where, again, it's just an overview, very, very quickly so, of much of the features of that lesson this morning. We cast a spotlight on the simple observation that life so often brings before you and me those matters that from our vantage point we would claim are not fair. It looks as though things ought to work out differently. And sometimes it brings us to despair, to disappointment. It brings us to a consideration or a feeling that really we are rather down. The reason that we consider these things is that throughout the Word of God, we have a great deal of encouragement as we relate to them. And so this morning, we look first of all at those features you'll notice on that slide. The error that came about in Jacob's family due to his partiality. That difficulty, that set of problems was very lasting, and it ultimately meant that his brothers hated Joseph so that they ultimately were willing to kill him. But the second thing we noticed, even in light of that family and the way that it had in many ways fallen apart, but this very evening, why don't we look at some other aspects of that life of Joseph? And as we do so, you'll notice that the life of Joseph has been given to you and me in great detail, hasn't it? Have you ever thought about the fact that amongst the book of Genesis, how many chapters are dedicated to Abraham? How many chapters are dedicated to Isaac? How many chapters are dedicated to Jacob? How many are devoted to Joseph? The Holy Spirit has seen fit to cast an impressive spotlight on the life of this man. And you and I can begin to appreciate why. Let's look at some other ways in which he addressed the apparent lack of fairness in his own life and did so with such impressiveness as you and I continue the journey. This morning you may recall that Joseph, while at the tender age of 17, he had been sent by his father to go and check on his brothers and the sheep that they were keeping. And he found them at Dothan. And in chapter 37, they saw him coming from a distance. And you and I well remember that they so disliked and so hated that for which he stood that they were ready to take his life. But ultimately it was spared, perhaps at the assertion of at least Reuben's helpfulness. But you and I remember they did sell him. A band of Ishmaelites came by, and from what you and I recognize, those were nomadic slave travelers and traders of the ancient world. They would buy people and then go off to a distant place and sell them. 
and they bought Joseph. He was now taken from home. In fact, he was taken to Egypt. He was taken to this place that no doubt he'd never seen, this place that was foreign to him. They didn't appreciate his God. They didn't appreciate his kind of people. And they certainly didn't appreciate the character of the things for which he stood. And yet here he was, such a youth, and yet so far from home. As you begin to notice with me, though, would you be impressed with me about some of the things we find concerning the character of Joseph? As you and I turn to the 39th chapter of Genesis, let's read a verse or two and ask again about the character of this man. As we take up that reading near the beginning of that chapter, it reads like this. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And immediately we find that having arrived in Egypt, a high-ranking official, Potiphar, purchased him. Potiphar may have had many slaves. In fact, likely he would have had given his high rank and his placement. And Joseph was going to be one of them. As Joseph was in that place, you'll notice verse 2 goes on to say, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Isn't it rather amazing that here again was Joseph. Ponder for a moment what he must have thought. Talk about homesickness. I strongly suspect that here he was, knowing well his father's house, all the blessings that went with it, and yet he was forcibly removed from it by the ill will of his brothers, sold as a common slave, and now taken to this far distant place. And you'll notice now here he is living in the house as a slave of one whom he, of course, had never known before. Inasmuch as that is stated, you'll begin to notice immediately, though, the Lord was with Joseph. May I suggest to you, at least it appears to me in light of that verse and some others, that that speaks volumes about the kind of person that Joseph was. God's not with those who aren't with Him. God isn't with those who are faithless with regard to Him. Now, it's true that they may enjoy some blessings like rainfall and other matters like that, but they do not have the spiritual well-being because God isn't with those in that condition. But God was with Him. That seemingly suggests that though he had been taken from home and though he was in this far distant place, his faithfulness to the Lord never waned. His commitment to God was steadfast and sure and strong, and you and I must be impressed with that. In fact, that's lesson number three. The two lessons we considered this morning were, of course, those related to partiality and matters in the family, but let's look at lesson three the commitment shown in the life of Joseph. I suspect that many of us at the age of 17, maybe our faith wasn't as well grounded as it is now. Maybe by that point, Dad, Mom had made me attend church services, but my heart perhaps wasn't in it the way it is now. I think we'd be fairly in position to say that this gentleman, this young man, aged 17, Remember, that's when he was taken and sold, so some amount of time agreeably may have passed. He's still a very young man. 
And yet, apparently, his commitment, his devotion, his dedication to the God of heaven and the things for which God stands was absolutely steadfast and sure. You'll notice that that isn't the only time, verse 2, that that statement is made. Look at verse 21 of the same chapter. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. As you think then about the kind of life of Joseph, how would you and I have reacted had we been in his situation? Sometimes being far from home, being away from one's parents, we all know on occasion what at least college students may fall into. When I'm under dad's house, there are certain things dad doesn't allow and certain things that dad and mom will not permit. But I'm living in the dorm now. Dad's not here to see me. And sometimes any number of activities begin to occur. Alcohol, loose living, and various and sundry things, all because Dad isn't there to watch. And those difficulties, of course, begin to show themselves in the kind of life that one leads. It would seem Joseph had a far stronger interior integrity than that. What about you and I? May I suggest, I hope that each of us have a strong and yearning desire to have a commitment as strong as Joseph's was. As you can well appreciate, I've gone on on that list to say, and you and I have often at least pondered it. We don't know what the circumstances of our culture and our time may bring, but this much must be certain. We need to make a determined consideration now that I will always be faithful to my God in heaven. I'll always be faithful to His Word, to the worship services of His people. And nothing will ever come between me and them. When you and I feel that way now, then even when duress arrives, if it does, even when those challenges and hard times arrive, we will have made a mental determination and we will be more likely to remain steadfast and faithful Look at some of these verses, if you would. Aren't you and I commanded, as in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That church in Corinth knew well about challenging times, didn't it? Here was a group of people in the midst of a heathen city, a city so often given to loose living in a number of ways, and yet that little congregation, that congregation of the people of God, was such that they were told, you always be unmovably faithful. Not only that, in 2 Peter 3.14, near the close of that, of that little three-chapter book, Peter, writing to those strangers scattered abroad, reminded them in no uncertain terms, you be steadfast. Now, they were told, of course, in the same book to grow in grace and the knowledge, but that included a heavy dose of steadfastness. Finally, in 2 Peter 1 verse 10, may I ask, and it's a passage that's so very meaningful to each of us, make your calling and election sure. S-U-R-E. Does that characterize your faith and mine? As you and I think about Joseph, at the bottom of that slide, may I say that there are occasions too when as a group, our faithfulness is so encouraging and we can appreciate our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But there could come circumstances in life when you or I may be called upon to stand alone. 
Maybe something develops at the workplace and you and I may be the lone voice for Jesus Christ. Maybe something develops in the community and you or I may be the lone voice for the truth of our Lord. Standing alone, you see, too, on occasion was required by God at various times in the Scriptures. What was it in relation to Daniel? We each remember he was thrown into a lion's den for his determined steadfastness in Daniel chapter 6. Three Hebrew children found themselves in a fiery furnace because they said, Be it known, we will not bow down. Throw us in that furnace if you must, but be it known. Our God can deliver us if He wishes to, but we're not bound down. Oh, what courage and confidence, and oh, what steadfastness there is in that. May you and I also have that backbone. It's been often said, I suppose, and how well again it might be noted, the reason as to why perhaps that Daniel was not consumed in that lion's den is he was all backbone. He was committed to God, wasn't he? As you and I read even further, aren't you and I promised the following in Revelation 2, Be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Life isn't fair, you see. Joseph didn't ask to be sold into slavery in Egypt. He didn't ask for it, beg for it. He didn't sign up for it, but it came his way. And when it did, his faithfulness was such that it saw him through, and God was with him. Even in hard times, God will be with you and me if we're faithful to Him. As this development continues, let's turn the page and proceed to notice what happened when Joseph was in the house of Potiphar. As this chapter 39 proceeds, we well remember that the text reads like this. Verse number 4, "...and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand." Notice again how the blessing of God resulted in Potiphar having confidence and trust in this gentleman Joseph, because whatever Joseph touched... It was prosperous. The next verse identifies this. It came to pass that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught that he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. The goodness of Joseph was even seen by his master. The nature, the character, the kind of integrity that he had, even Potiphar soon realized it. All of that brings us to the rather sad description of the next few verses. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me you can begin to appreciate that the prosperity that Joseph felt the kind of character and integrity that he had displayed and showed, soon Potiphar's own wife turned her attention toward him in ways that were not good. She began to look upon Joseph, and you'll notice it wasn't just a passing matter. She wanted him to lie with her to commit fornication. That brings us to some of the next observations. Would you notice the following with me? The text, and you might want to take note of the strength of it. Verse 8 begins when it says, But he refused. 
you and I might well understand that Joseph might have had a number of things he could physically have gained by, in fact, doing this. He would have had her on his side, and maybe she could have helped him be elevated even to higher position. That didn't matter to Joseph. In fact, was it the least concern to him? It says, He refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? Did you notice the calmness and the directness with which he spoke to Potiphar's wife? He explained to her the fact that, on the one hand, I am his servant, and you are his wife. He has committed the things into my hand. Now that doesn't include you, as he spoke to her. But an even greater truth is this, what you are asking and what's on your mind is wickedness. And how can I sin against God like that? Are you gaining a feeling? His faith in God had never wavered. He knew what was wrong and he knew what was right. And what she had on her mind was not right. Isn't it true that in light of those things, verse number 10 goes on to say this, she didn't stop with that immediate refusal. The text quickly says, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day. I imagine that Joseph felt a bit of nervousness as he was working around the place, every day he had to keep refusing her, shall we say, interest in him. But he kept refusing. Day after day she approached him. Day after day her interest was on things that were not right and not good, and Joseph refused. Finally it says that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. Isn't it interesting Joseph took those matters and those steps necessary whereby the integrity and purity of his heart might be well understood and well appreciated. As you come to the bottom of that slide, things take a very ugly turn for Joseph because the text says in verse number 11, "...it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within." And she caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. And it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, that she fled and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. She lied about Joseph. It wasn't Joseph's interest to lie with her. It was her interest to lie with him. She made her aggressiveness toward him and he refused. And in fact, when she became even to this point... She grabbed hold of his garment and Joseph fled, leaving the garment behind. As he did, whatever it was that crossed her mind led her to this action. Whether it was her anger at him, whether it was her anger at her own husband, we aren't told. But the text says she held on to the garment and then when her husband Potiphar came home, this is what she told him. Verse number 17, 
And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And Potiphar believed her. As a result of that, verse number 20 reads like this, Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. Joseph was cast into prison. Does that sound fair? He hadn't done anything wrong. She had been the one doing wrong. She had been the one accusing him, and it was not the other way around. Life isn't fair, you see. Joseph first had been sold by his brothers, and now, even though he was doing a fine job for Potiphar, he ends up in prison. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, you'll notice it's not that he stayed there for a week or a month or even a year. He was there two whole years. Are you beginning to gain a feeling of, it would have been easy for Joseph by this point in anger to shake his fist at God. How could you let this happen to me? I was sold from my daddy's house. I never asked for that. And how these lies have been told against me, and they aren't true. We have no inclination, nowhere in this book that Joseph ever said anything like that. As we close that slide and turn to the next, you'll notice that two-year period, of course, you and I well remember it had a great deal of significance. The time came that Joseph was able to interpret some dreams, and in so doing, he was eventually released. But could I ask you to ponder the following with me? Sometimes the unfairness that you and I may well experience in life may be due to those sinful, foolish choices of somebody else. I suppose that kind of unfairness is the hardest to accept, isn't it? If I suffer for something that I've done, that's one thing. But if you, by your choices, have led me to suffer, have led to some difficulty on my part, that only heightens the frustration and it heightens the challenge and difficulty associated with it. Think about Joseph. If you and I find ourselves on that end of unfairness, may we be quick to remind ourselves of a man named Joseph. And thus, let's consider lesson number four. Joseph had done no wrong to Potiphar's wife, had done no wrong to Potiphar, and yet he was in prison. As you and I develop that like this, doesn't it highlight the kind of spirit within us that will be required? It'll require a spirit of perseverance. We can't give up even then. Joseph didn't. I read earlier in our hearing verse number 21, but now is the proper time to place it in context. Here he was in prison, and yet the text says the Lord was with him. One more time indicating that he maintained his fidelity to God, his faithfulness even after suffering these things and being found in, uh, a prisoner in prison. If you think about all those things with me, isn't it true? The Bible on a few occasions brings before us individuals like Job. Job, you may remember, his children were killed. His possessions were stolen, taken by enemy nations, by enemy individuals in Job chapter 1. Here was yet a man who was righteous. Does that sound fair? 
you and I know from the standpoint of this world it isn't, and the devil was behind it. It was the devil who himself was having a heyday in the life of Job. It certainly wasn't pleasant for Job. May you and I never forget it's the devil who wants things to be so hard for us. It's him who wants to come after us like a roaring lion and who wants things to become so challenging and so difficult that we are willing to compromise our faith and to compromise the things that are right in the sight of God. May we, like Joseph, not fall to those traps and temptations. That perseverance is suggested to us as the great example Jesus Christ is listed. I would invite you to note with care the way that 1 Peter 2 verses 21 and following is written. Here was a group of people who themselves were suffering. One of the key words in the book of 1 Peter is suffering. Time and again, the word is utilized to describe the difficulties and challenges that those individuals then were facing and to them. The inspired writer said, Jesus Christ is our example. He suffered, and even though He did, He never reviled, never was guile found in His mouth. And yet, if we are to be like Him, we too should endure that suffering and do it with patience. Does that describe things needful for your life and mine? Oh, it does, because life isn't fair. And when those unfairnesses come, may we with perseverance and patience, and may we with a proper attitude of faithfulness, seek to maintain our fidelity to the Lord. As you and I add to those thoughts, the bottom statement on the slide still rings so powerfully. Life so often manifests unfairness. This saga of Joseph continues. As you turn to the following observation with me, we're going to leap a few chapters forward and look at one final episode from the life of Joseph. I would call to your attention Genesis chapter 49, verses 22 and following. A statement is therein made from Jacob himself. You may recall with me that that chapter is basically the dying words of Jacob. Shortly before he passed away, he gathered his children about him and he shared with them some things that the future would hold for them and for their posterity. And yet in verse number 22, notice what he said about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over a wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him, but his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors under the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. Did you hear that with me? Joseph will be a fruitful bough. Jacob knew it. Aren't you impressed with the fact that Jacob himself said, The archers have sorely grieved him. Jacob knew how Joseph had suffered. His brothers had hated him and sold him the challenges and difficulties of his life in prison. And yet Jacob, his father, was quick to say, in verse number 24, his bowed, 
His bowl abode in strength. I submit to you that's a great compliment from a father to a son. Of all his children, Jacob pronounced an incredible statement of blessing upon Joseph, highlighted in him that he would be that fruitful bough who would be bountiful, who would be blessed. It is following that. You and I might turn one more chapter to the closing chapter of Genesis. As you do, there's one final thought about Joseph, one final appreciation of the life of this man that I would invite us to consider. It, in fact, begins in the following way. Joseph's faith was an overriding truth throughout this entire book. And that faithfulness, that integrity, that commitment, that loyalty, that unwavering devotion was something that in fact led him to be that blessing not only to the local people of that day, but of course throughout the ages since. Later you and I read that in the honor roll of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Joseph is mentioned. Joseph is mentioned. His faith was the guiding thought to his life. Even in matters of duress, even in matters of challenge and difficulty, and even when he stood alone, his faith was there. So much so that in verses 16 and 17 of this chapter, we have one final statement for him that we will consider tonight. It has to do with the following. Jacob is now dead, so daddy's gone. The brothers were very fearful that now that dad was gone, Joseph would in fact now take vengeance on them. They seemingly run the impression... Joseph has been good to us, but that's only because Dad's still alive. Now that Jacob is gone, he will get us because we sold him into slavery. He will take vengeance upon us. Listen to what Joseph said. They sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Doesn't that bring a note of sadness to your heart? Here were Joseph's brothers. Think how many years had passed. Well, over 30 years had passed since they sold Joseph into slavery. 30 years have elapsed and they still are bothered by, the, by what they did. If that doesn't speak to what a troubled conscience can do, I don't know what biblical text will do it. All these years have passed and they still are agitated by what they did. And now that dad has passed on, they feel sure Joseph is going to take a measure of vengeance against them. And therefore, they send a messenger to Joseph. Dad gave commandment that you forgive us. Did you notice how Joseph reacted when he received the message? Verse number 17 the closing statement of it is this, And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Here's a grown man crying. He was so troubled by the fact the brothers didn't trust him. They thought that all this time he still harbored vengeance against them. They thought he was taking care of them only for selfish reasons until dad passed on. That hadn't been the case at all. Joseph forgave them. Joseph appreciated what they had done, and he never condoned it, of course. But this is the way he described it. 
Verse number 18 says, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Joseph, in essence, told them, I forgave you. I know you meant it to me for evil. You sold me into slavery, and there's no changing that, but God meant it for good. And Joseph could see the hand of the Almighty God of heaven in all of it, the great providential hand of the Almighty. And as he made reference to it here, he asserted again in verse number 18, Don't you be afraid. I'll nourish you. As Joseph provided them with some comfort and some reflective matters on that point, I'm sure those brothers learned a great deal that day. If they thought honestly and earnestly about it, they had to be impressed. And they should have been willing to say, He's a better man than I am. For Joseph, you see, acted on behalf of God. As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, could I ask each of us to think about ourselves in light of New Testament verses that discuss issues like this? In 1 Peter 3, verses 10 and following, isn't it true that you and I can notice there were many forces working against Joseph, and yet he, by the strength of God, overcame all of them? What a blessing he was, and you and I can be in a similar situation. We may not ever be sold into slavery, I confess, and we may not ever be find ourselves in prison. But how often do we face the onslaught matters of evil, iniquity, those things brought about by a world that's given over to the devil? We must stand strong and faithful with an unwavering and uncompromising faith in the God of heaven and the truth of His Word. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse number 12, May we never then be a hindrance to the cause of Christ, never acting hypocritically, making one claim on Sunday but living far different on Monday. That won't work. And if that had been the kind of life Joseph lived, God wouldn't have been with him either. But God being with him testifies to the kind of person, the kind of youth, the kind of man he had become. Surely in light of all those things, we can come to our conclusion slide. Life isn't fair. And we will set ourselves up for disappointment if we demand it to be this side of death. When fairness will be appreciated is when you and I live faithfully to the Lord. We can rest assured that on the day of judgment, fairness will be taken care of then. But fairness by the judgment of God, fairness by the verdict of heaven, fairness in light of, you see, ultimate eternity and that which has been brought about. As you and I think then about life isn't fair, we've seen a pair of lessons today taken from the life of this Old Testament character. At the bottom of that slide, I thought I would close it by asking each of us to reflect on it this way. I mentioned a moment ago that Joseph is included in the honor roll of faith in Hebrews 11. But you know, as that chapter ends, there's something there about you and me. Think with me about what it says about yourself. You could put your name in the description found on this, on this occasion. As I read it, be impressed with how much God looks upon your faithfulness and mine. Hebrews 11, I'll begin reading in verse number 34. 
after listing these individuals who had endured so much for the cause of their faith, he says, "...quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection." May we not too quickly pass by the fact the inspired writer says throughout the ages that some have been tortured because of their faith. Let's read on. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. Individuals have found themselves in prison because of faith. We've studied about one. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Christian life can be hard. Do you hear what those through the ages on occasion have endured? Let's read on. Verse 38 begins as one of the most touching phrases for me anywhere in the New Testament. Of whom the world was not worthy. These members of the honor roll of faith, they were great men and women. The world didn't deserve them. The world wasn't worthy of them. That's how great they were. But yet they endured all the things that this chapter mentions, and they endured it with faithfulness and character and integrity. It says they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report, through faith received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. You, my friend, are such that you have received blessings they never did. Many of them died before Jesus Christ was ever born to this earth. They died never being a member of the church, and yet you and I are able to enjoy that blessing. May we never take it for granted. You see, they died not having received the promise, God having some better thing in store for us. Notice the us, that's where your name and mine can be. And therefore, even though life is often not fair, may we in faithfulness and integrity and in unwavering loyalty to the God of heaven appreciate that faithfulness will see us through life, whatever may come our way, and when ultimately all the trophies are laid down, as that old song often says, we can then appreciate in that life beyond this one that we will be able to hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Tonight, if there would be anyone in the audience, and maybe under the duress of the days, your faithfulness has wavered. If your sins are known in a private way, approach the God of heaven in private through the Lord Jesus Christ and beg His forgiveness and pledge your faithfulness again in renewed ways. But if your sins have been of a public nature, we would urge you and the Lord would invite you to come before this group tonight and make confession of those things. And as you repent of them, we'll approach God in prayer and He has assured you He'll forgive you. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone... Remember, life isn't fair, but God never promised it would be. We look for the land beyond this one where all the fairness ever to be appreciated will then be known, according to Revelation 22. 
tonight. The invitation's extended. If we could be of assistance to you, we'd invite you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.